Second Corinthians chapter 12 is, well, it's near the end of the, the, the letter. Uh, there are, this chapter and chapter 13 are all that's remaining. And Paul has, again, been defending himself, as we have been telling you um, in chapters 10 and 11. In chapter 11, he talked about the various things that he had had to endure uh, as a servant of the Lord, the various trials that he had to face, the difficulties, the challenges, the beatings, the imprisonments, uh, the, the times that he had to really be very, very uncertain about whether he'd even see the next day because of the, what was going on in his life. And he shared all of that because they were, again, thinking him to be not a true apostle because their impression, understanding of what an apostle should be was nothing like what they saw in Paul. And so they questioned his authority. And again, he's been defending his authority as an apostle in these last couple of chapters. Chapter 12 will continue to do that. But this time, he's going to point out something that happened to him many years previously that he apparently hadn't shared with anybody else. It was kind of a private experience that he had had. And he shares it here uh, for the Corinthians to recognize something else about his uh, apostleship that he counted as being proof of his uh, authority to be uh, the one that made the claims that he had made about himself. He never wanted to make any boasting about himself. That wasn't his intent. However, um, the Corinthians thought it was a good thing for men to boast about themselves, to express their uh, credentials to others so that others would say, wow, he certainly is a really man of knowledge or, or wisdom or whatever it was that they were appealing uh, uh, to the masses when they would come and, and proclaim the, the news that they had to bring and the public speaking that they did with a style that was considered to be so, so very powerful and uh, appropriate for the age. None of that was done by Paul. He was just simply going there to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Christ died, was buried, and was raised again from the dead. That's the gospel that Paul proclaimed. And he did many miracles and signs in their presence, but that really wasn't apparently good enough. So now Paul in chapter 12 kind of gives us this remarkable uh, information about a particular thing that had occurred in his life to once again firm up in their minds that he was indeed uh, the man that was worthy of being called an apostle of Jesus Christ. Chapter 12, verse 1 begins with these words, It is doubtful, not profitable, or doubtless rather, not profitable for me to boast. I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. He didn't want to boast, but he's come to the point where he feels he must in order for them to be settled in their mind about his credentials. He says in verse 2, and notice that he speaks this in third-person language. He doesn't say, I am the one, but later on we'll see that it was the one that he's speaking of in this particular section that we're about to read. Chapter 12, verse 2 says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know, or whether out of the body I do not know, but God knows, such a one was caught up to the third heaven. 
And I know such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know, God knows, how he was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words which it is not lawful for a man to utter. Consider what Paul is saying here in these three verses. Paul says about some man that he's talking about here, kind of like, uh, in again, the third person, not really identifying himself yet, but he's saying, I know about a man who about 14 years ago, uh, whether in the body or out of the body, I couldn't tell you that, but uh, only God would know, but he was caught up into the third heaven. So the first question that might come to everyone's mind is, what does he mean by the third heaven? Well, in Hebrew culture, for the most part, there were three heavens. Biblically speaking, only three heavens are mentioned. The first heaven is our atmosphere, uh, where the birds fly, where the airplanes can uh, cross uh, the, uh, the skies going from destination to destination, the air that we breathe, the atmosphere, the blue sky, the clouds, that's all the first heaven. And up above that first heaven is what the Bible refers to as the second heaven. And the second heaven constitutes all the stars, all of these celestial uh, objects that are out in that universe that we can see with our eyes. It's an amazing thing that we can see so much of the universe as we are able to, but yet so little of the universe in the same breath. The reason I say that is because it is so vast, and we can see very far indeed, but barely beyond our own galaxy. We can see a few other galaxies with the naked eye, but mostly the stars that we see in the sky are stars that belong to our Milky Way galaxy. There are some exceptions to that. Some of the constellations contain stars that belong to other galaxies, and in there are also some galaxies that are close enough, like Andromeda, to be able to be seen with the naked eye. But it looks like a star to us, and without a telescope, we can't really see the details of all of those things. But now that we have space telescopes, the Hubble, uh, which was launched several years ago, opened up a wide array of new vistas that we could explore with that wonderful instrument that's been so very, very uh, helpful in digging deeper and deeper into that space that is still the second heaven. But now that we have the James Webb, we can see even further than ever before. Astronomers believe that the earliest galaxies that the James Webb has been able to discover so far are about 13.5 billion light years away very near the time when they believe the beginning of the universe was with the Big Bang when it exploded and all of the creation that we now know was expanded at an immense rate of speed into the universe that we have right now. Now, we have a better explanation than that in the Word of God. God created it all. In fact, God created the earth before he created the heavens, before he created all the celestial objects in our skies. But the universe, our galaxy, all the stars, the sun, the moon, they're all in that second heaven. I'm reminded when the Soviets launched their first manned spacecraft, it went into space, that second heaven, and one of the cosmonauts is purported to have said, we have arrived in heaven, but we see no God. 
They were atheists. They didn't believe. They didn't have a Bible. But if they had had a Bible, they would have known that they weren't in the place where God dwells. Because the place where God dwells is not approachable in the physical realm at all. And it is known as the third heaven. It's also described by Paul here as paradise. And I find that interesting too because paradise is only found in two other places in the New Testament. One in the book of Revelation in chapter 2 where John is telling the Ephesian church that they are going to be able to, if they have ears to hear, enter into paradise where the tree of life is. And also, Jesus in Luke, when he proclaimed the fact that Lazarus went to paradise in Abraham's bosom, actually he said Abraham's bosom, but he told the thief on the cross that when they were to die that day, that they would be in paradise. So, paradise again, is now in the third heaven. My understanding of Scripture is this. When Jesus described the location of paradise in Luke's Gospel, when he talked to the, uh, taught the story about the rich man and Lazarus in Hades, the, the uh, rich man was in torment. Lazarus was with Abraham in what was known then as Abraham's bosom. And there was a chasm that separated the two. Most theologians, I believe this is true, believe that when Jesus died on the cross, he descended into that realm where Abraham and all of the saints, David and Samuel and all of the other saints of the Old Testament had gone who were believers in God and he led captivity captive, and when he did, he moved paradise from that realm under the earth into the third heaven. He led captivity captive. So that would explain why Paul here says that paradise is now in the third heaven, that place where God dwells, where God's throne is. We cannot see it. We don't have much of a description of it anywhere in Scripture, with the exception of what John said he had seen in the book of Revelation and what Paul says here in Second Corinthians chapter 12. So again, reading verse 2, he says, I know such a one who was caught up to the third heaven. Caught up. That word in the original Greek language is harpazo. You may be familiar with that word if you have been with me for any length of time. You may remember, I hope, that we have studied 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 where Paul says that we who are alive and remain will be harpazoed or caught up to be with them, the other saints who have come with him in the air and there we shall always be with the Lord. The dead in Christ will rise first. Their bodies will be raised up and resurrected to new bodies. Their souls will come with him and be reunited, united with their glorified bodies. And we will be given our glorified bodies as we are harpazo, caught up together with them, to be with the Lord in the air. It's the same word that Paul uses here. He was caught up. In Revelation chapter 4, 
we have a similar idea presented by John as he's instructed by the Lord in verse 1 of chapter 4 of the book of Revelation where the Lord says to John, come up here, get up here. It is a command for John to depart quickly. And it was that vision that John had that he related to us in a very remarkable way where he saw the sea of glass and he saw the throne of God and him sitting on the throne, the father of glory. And one like a lamb who was slain came to take the scroll out of the father's hand and open it. John saw those things and he described some of those things. But Paul here in this passage says in verse 4, he was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words which it is not lawful for a man to utter. Now, in some of your translations, it might say it is not permitted for a man to utter those things. The idea is the same. Now, either the Lord restrained him from speaking about those things as he did with Elijah, for instance, where he told him or yeah, Elijah not to not to speak anything that he had read in the scroll that he had to eat. John, though, on the other hand, both ate the scroll and revealed it. Daniel was told not to reveal what he was told when he gave that vision in chapters nine through twelve of the book of Daniel. So the prophets in the Old Testament and in the New Testament have had revelations, some of which have been revealed, others are, have not been revealed. And I'm wondering here if it just simply means that Paul could not speak those things that he saw because God restrained him from doing so, like he had with the others. But in any case, he wasn't permitted to. It wasn't lawful for him to say anything to anyone because it was so inexpressible. I love the word that he uses there. It's an indication that he couldn't come up with the words to speak anyway. He was unable to describe the things that he saw. Now, I find that to be in itself very fascinating indeed because Paul was a man of words. Paul had a marvelous handle on multiple languages. And you would think that he could have at least given some effort in describing some of what he saw. It probably wouldn't have made any sense to any of us today if he had done so. But here's a man who was a very capable linguist, and yet he still was in a, unable to express the words of those things that he heard while he was there. Now he says in verse 5, of such a one I will boast, yet of myself I will not boast except in my affirmities. So now he's going to kind of lay it down so that they will understand. He's really actually talking about himself here. He didn't want to say, I was caught up, because he doesn't want to boast about himself. But now he's saying, I myself will not boast except for my infirmities, the things that I've had to suffer. That's what Paul wanted to, uh, to boast about, and I find that quite interesting as well. Paul said in Philippians, that I might know the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering. And I'm not really sure if any of us could understand the reason Paul might have wanted to suffer for Christ's sake. But he did want that. And I'm not sure that I'm prepared to say, I'm ready to suffer for Christ. If he gives me the grace to do so, I know that I will be able to. But I'm not hoping to. I'm not wanting to. I don't know that any of us are. 
But there may come a day when we might have to suffer for Jesus' sake. And if we do, I still believe firmly that he will give the grace, as he did in the past to all the saints that were martyred, give the grace to endure that which must come upon us, whatever that might be. But he's not going to boast in his revelation. He's not going to boast in the great blessings that he received as an apostle. And there were many times when Paul did indeed have a great revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Several times, Luke tells us in the book of Acts, so Paul must have told Luke about these things, but they were privately conveyed to Luke, yet Luke was given the permission to write about them. Paul had the vision of Jesus on the road to Damascus, where a great light shined, and all those who were with Paul fell to the ground, and he heard the voice of the Lord speaking to him, Paul, Paul, or Saul, Saul, rather, why are you persecuting me? You know that story well. It was a moment of conversion for the Apostle Paul. Later on in Paul's ministry, in several different places in Jerusalem, there in Corinth, while he was in Corinth, and also other places on, the, on board the ship as they were sailing to Rome. He had the Lord or an angel of the Lord visiting him in the jail cell in Philippi. The, the Lord or an angel of the Lord visited him with Silas. He had great revelations that are recorded for us in the Word of God. But here, in this particular passage, is the only place where we know of this story that Paul has outlined for us. And again, he says, I didn't really want to boast about this, but I felt the need to do so, so that you would understand I have authority that has been given to me by the Lord Jesus Christ. He'll later go on to say, I am not any different or less than any of the apostles. But here he says in verse 6, again, For though I might desire to boast, I will not be a fool, for I will speak the truth. But I refrain, lest anyone should think of me above what he sees me to be, or hears from me. I like that, and I want that to be the case for me and for anyone else who is in the ministry, or in any kind of a leadership role, or doing anything that is publicly done on behalf of the Lord, that it would not be me or anyone else who is lifted up in that process, but that Jesus Christ alone is edified, glorified, and he is the one to be receiving the praise and the glory from men, not us. John says it well, John the Baptist, I must decrease, he must increase. And that is the way we should all approach our ministry as we serve him. But Paul said, I refrain from boasting, lest anyone should think of me above what he sees me to be or hears from me. I don't want anybody to think I'm exalting myself. In fact, Paul emphasized the fact that we are to humble ourselves and never to think of ourselves more highly than we ought. Paul certainly didn't about himself, nor should any of us as well. So Paul is here saying, I don't want to boast, but I know that I have had to share this information with you so that you would know that I am truly an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he goes on to talk about the infirmities again that he has had to deal with, not just the terrible things that he had to suffer in the stories that he revealed in chapter 11, but now he reveals something that is a consequence of this great revelation that he had over 14 years prior to this. 
And by the way, let me just backtrack a little bit. We don't know exactly what the occasion was that ended up resulting in Paul being caught up to the third heaven. A lot of theologians think it might have been and may have very well been his time in Lystra. Remember on his first missionary journey, it would have been back around 44 or 6 BC that he was in Lystra. So the timing isn't quite right. But then again, we don't know the exact dates of any of these things that are being reported to us by Paul or by Luke in most cases. So we can make assumptions. It may have been Lystra because of this one fact. When he left Lystra, or when he arrived in Lystra, he was proclaiming the gospel to those who were there, and they took him outside the city and they stoned him. They believed they stoned him to to death because they left him for dead. Now, those who would have been stoning him would have been Jews. And it is that which makes me believe very strongly that Paul did indeed die at the stoning of those Jews because they wouldn't have made an assumption about his death. They would have made sure because stoning was to be unto death. It wasn't just to harm somebody. It was to punish him until he breathes no more. They left the scene after they left him for dead. And then Paul rose up from that stoning and walked back into the city of Lystra and continued to proclaim the gospel to those who would hear it. An amazing recovery, resuscitation from, I believe, the dead. That may have been the time that Paul is referring to here when he says he was caught up into paradise. The only other possibility that I can think of perhaps is when after Paul was saved, having gone to Damascus, escaped from Damascus, from the room on the wall of the city, let down in a basket to escape the Jews, he went from there down into Arabia. We're not told how long Paul was there, but the time frame may fit better with Paul's description of about 14 years before the writing of this letter, which it is assumed by most theologians to have been around 46 B.A.D. So either one of those possibilities exists. Uh, it really doesn't make a whole lot of difference whether it was Lystra or whether it was Arabia where he had that revelation. But at that particular event, when he realized what he had seen, what he had heard, he now is in his body recognizing the fact that God had given him such a great wonderful, powerful, awesome revelation of himself, that Paul says this. He says, Lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. Notice he says that more than once, exalted above measure. He did not want to be puffed up. He did not want to be proud of his great experience having been shown such wonderful things that no other man would have ever seen until he did. But he says, in order to prevent that from happening, the Lord saw to it that a thorn in the flesh would be given to him. And he describes it here as a messenger of Satan to buffet me. The word buffet just simply means 
being. That's what it means. It is the same idea as what you would receive from a fist fight, a beating. He was given this messenger of Satan to beat him, apparently on a regular basis. And Paul said that that was what he considered to be a thorn in the flesh. Now, some believe, by the way, that that word thorn is like a tent stake in the original Greek. It can be used for that. It can also be used for just a thorn out of a thorny bush. But either way, it's painful. If you've ever had a thorn in your finger or on any part of your body, you know that it's not a comfortable thing to have to endure until the thorn is removed. Well, apparently, in Paul's case, that thorn remained. It was a thorn in his flesh, and it was painful, and it was constantly buffeting him to keep him from exalting himself. The Lord did this. Think back in the Old Testament to the book of Job. What did God allow Satan to do? He allowed Satan to destroy everything that Job owned. All of his property was gone. All of his great wealth was taken away in a moment. His children were killed. The only thing that he had left was his wife and his own flesh. But his flesh was filled with boils. What did Job say in all of that? When his wife came to him and said, why don't you just curse God and die? Job's response was, no. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away Blessed be the name of the Lord. What a great attitude. What a great mind of a person who served the Lord with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. To be able to say such things and to live out his life in such a way as to glorify the Lord in spite of all that went that way against him. Paul was like that. Now, concerning that thorn, Paul says, I wanted to do away with it. And so he approached the Lord. He says in verse 8, Concerning this thing, I pleaded, I begged with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. Have you ever asked the Lord for something that you so desperately wanted and you didn't get the answer that you thought you should get or didn't get any answer at all? And you go back again and ask and it still didn't come? Do you get frustrated when you don't hear from the Lord? Do you get discouraged when you think that maybe the Lord isn't hearing? Of course he's hearing. And it is in his time that he will indeed answer. Paul tells us he gives us everything above and beyond what we can ask or think when we're trusting in him. Jesus said, ask and you shall receive. It's so, so very true that our God does indeed care for everything Whatever our needs are, he doesn't promise to give us our greed, but he does promise to give us our need. He will provide all our need according to his riches in glory. It's according to his riches, not according to my desires. But Paul again asked a third time, and then he got the response from the Lord. It wasn't what he was looking for. But I think he got something far greater from the Lord in the Lord's response than what he could have ever imagined. 
exceeding above all that he could ask or think. Because the Lord's response was this in verse 9. And he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. My grace is sufficient for you. I believe Jesus says that to every child of God. His grace is indeed sufficient. His grace covers a multitude of sins. His love covers a multitude of sins. But where sin abounds, grace all the more abounds. Grace is always available to us if we approach our God by faith. And it may not be the answer that we need or think we need, but it is indeed, from God's perspective, the answer that we do need. My grace is sufficient for you, he said. My strength is made perfect in weakness. In some translations, it leaves out the preposition or the uh, pronoun my. In other words, he says, power or strength is made perfect in weakness. Well, that's only because in some manuscripts, the word my isn't included for whatever reason. It may have been overlooked by a scribe or it may have been inserted in other manuscripts that we have by other scribes who wrote copies of copies of copies of the original text. In any case, whether it's Jesus' strength or just simply strength that he's talking about, the same concept applies. We can receive great strength from our Lord whenever we are suffering, whenever we have a period of weakness we can be made strong, and that strength that we have certainly isn't our own. And if we thought it was, then we would become puffed up. That would not be good. But we recognize it's not my strength, it's not my power, but it's his power that is made strong in me. Then it makes a world of difference from our perspective in regard to what God is doing in our lives. So let us take note of the fact that Paul says this, which Jesus said to him, and I believe we can apply it to ourselves as well. Jesus says, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. He goes on to say, Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities rather than the revelation. I would rather boast in my troubles. I would rather boast in my illness. I would rather boast in my tribulation. I would rather boast in the persecution that comes against me from unbelieving people, I would rather boast in everything that goes badly for me if I know, and because I do know that this is the case, I can rejoice in this one fact. I have the strength of God in me, and I will most gladly boast in those infirmities and troubles and tribulations and trials so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Again, Paul isn't saying so that I might be looking like some great, magnificent person, because I'm not, I would want to boast in my infirmities so that Christ will be glorified, Christ's name will be magnified and exalted. For then, he says, therefore I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses, for Christ's sake, for when I am weak, then I am strong. And again, it is not his own strength. It is the strength of Christ through him and in him. This is a remarkable section of Scripture that we've just been looking at. Paul has seen in the past some great revelation 
and he uses that wonderful experience to demonstrate how important it is for all of us to realize that we should never boast about those great things that God has done for us. It's not what God intends for us to use those things that he has done for us to lift ourselves up above others, say, look what God has done for me. Look what I have accomplished for God. That is absolutely foreign to the New Testament understanding of God's grace and mercy for the believers. We should never, ever think along those lines to puff ourselves up. Remember, Paul talked in the first Corinthians letter about the Corinthian church being puffed up with their knowledge. Paul has addressed that. It should never, ever be that we should puff ourselves up. We should be loving others and edifying the body of Christ. That word edifying, again, means lifting others up, lifting the church body up, lifting people that you minister to up, and not yourselves. Again, as John the Baptist said, he must increase, I must decrease. I want to be humbled before the Lord. And I want to attain that level of humility that Christ attained, which is really an impossibility for me or for any of us, any one of us. But through Christ, through His Spirit who dwells in us, we are able to live our lives in that state of humility so that we can do what James tells us we must do. We must submit ourselves to God and humble ourselves before Him. And when we do that, then we will see the enemy flee and God the Father will draw close to us. That's the promise of God's Word. That's the thing that Paul is emphasizing here, that we as believers must do as he did. And when we do, we will realize that we have great power, not of our own, but of Christ himself who dwells in us, so that when we are weak, he is made strong. And we are strengthened as a result of that. Well, verse 11 now continues to talk about Paul's having presented these things and almost apologetically says these things following. Verse 11, I have become a fool in boasting. You've compelled me, for I ought to have been commended by you, for in nothing was I behind the most eminent apostles, though I am nothing. So Paul is saying, look, I really feel badly about the fact that I've had to come to this. But you forced me, you compelled me to do this because of your need to have any kind of uh, expression from me that gives you the pleasure of thinking I'm a great apostle. Paul did not want that to happen. But he has done what he has done here because of, of their compelling him to do so. And he says, you should have commend, commended me I ought to have been commended by you, he says, for in nothing I was behind the most eminent apostles, though I am nothing. Paul founded the church at Corinth. He birthed the church there. There was no reason for them to think anything less of him than as the apostle that he truly was. He'd shown them signs and wonders at his hand by the power of the Holy Spirit. They should have known in fact, he says that in verse 12. Truly, the signs of an apostle were accomplished among you with all perseverance in signs and wonders and mighty deeds. So there was nothing lacking in the Corinthian church as far as his ministry to them was concerned. 
He was indeed an apostle to them from the very beginning. But they didn't really believe that. Why is that? Because others came in after Paul left and began to persuade the people in Corinth that Paul was not really a true apostle. And many of them began to believe the lie. So he's had to deal with this in this letter and also in the first Corinthians letter because of those people who came in after him, most likely Jews, because again, he identifies them as Jews in chapter 11. We read that last time. So he's saying, they have turned your heart away from me and you need to come back because I love you. He's going to tell them that nearly uh, those very words in these next verses that we're about to read. He says in verse 13, For what is it which you were inferior to other churches, except that I myself was not burdensome to you? Forgive me this wrong. Kind of a sarcastic, again, approach that Paul is giving here. They thought it was wrong that he would not be a burden to them by asking for, for them or from them for his support. He did not do that. He never asked them for money. And they thought less of him because of that. And he says, I didn't want to do that. Forgive me this wrong. But it wasn't a wrong at all. In Paul's eyes, it was the right thing for him to have done. Verse 14 says, Now for the third time I am ready to come to you, and I will not be burdensome to you still. For I do not seek yours, but you. I don't want to have anything from you except yourselves. I served God in Corinth for those 18 months because I wanted you to know the truth. And I wanted you to know that when you know the truth, the truth will set you free. And you had nothing lacking in the ministry that you saw in Paul during those times that he was there with them. He's saying, I do not seek yours but you, for the children ought not to lay up for the parents, but the parents for the children. That's just a simple way of understanding that the children don't give the parents an inheritance, it's the other way around. The giving comes from the parent to the child. Paul considered himself to be their father a loving father who gave good gifts to his children. That was his approach. And the good gifts was the very word of God. Verse 15 says, And I will very gladly spend and be spent for your souls. Though the more abundantly I love you, the less I am loved. Even though you're not returning the love that I have expressed toward you, that matters not. I will still very gladly spend and be spent for your souls. What a heart that Paul had, and he's expressing in these words that he's given to us here. This man loved the people of God, and it was his desire for them to know the Word of God, and to know the power of God, and to know that faith in Jesus Christ was all that was necessary for them to live a life filled by the Holy Spirit, and enabling them through the Spirit to do the works that God calls them to do. Paul never, ever confused the issue of works and faith. Paul always emphasized salvation is by faith alone. But from salvation, having been wrought by faith, 
there should come good works. And the good works are there to be proof of our salvation, to demonstrate that we are indeed saved, not to earn our salvation. Salvation is not earned, it is a gift of God, lest any man should boast. Faith and works are both necessary. James agrees with Paul. Show me your faith, and I will show you my faith by my works, James says. Paul says the same thing. When he tells us that we're saved through faith, lest we should boast, it's a gift of God, lest any man should boast, it's a gift of God, nothing else. And then he goes on to say, and it is God who works in us for his good pleasure unto good works that we are to do for the glory of God. Don't ever confuse works and faith. Don't ever believe that you must do something to earn your salvation. Paul never taught that. Neither did James, neither did Peter or any of the other New Testament writers. In fact, the Old Testament writers said the same thing. And Paul quotes Hosea, the just shall live by faith. Did I, did I take advantage of you by any of those whom I sent to you, Paul says? Going back to verse 16, I skipped that, let me read that. He says, but be that as it may, I did not burden you. Nevertheless, being crafty, I caught you by cunning. So he's kind of treating this in a way to show them, I've turned this on you. Let me show you what I'm saying. I boasted in a man. I wanted you to know about him, but I didn't boast in myself. Now that you know that that man was me, now you know that I am a true apostle, I'm turning it back to you and say, now know that I love you and you should love me in return. Very cunning, very crafty. Paul was a very, very wonderfully capable servant of God. And he wanted them to know that. Then he said again in verse 17, which I already read, Did I take advantage of you by any of those whom I sent to you? Remember, he had sent Titus and another apostle. He's going to remember, I remind them of that here. In verse 18, he says, I urged Titus and sent our brother with him. Did Titus take advantage of you? Did we not walk in the same spirit? Did we not walk in the same steps? Titus didn't ask for your money, did he? No, because Titus was like me in respect to the ministry that God has called him to, as well as that ministry that God called me to. We're one and the same in terms of our approach to ministry. Titus didn't try to take anything from you, did he? No. Again, in verse 19, he says, Do you think that we excuse ourselves to you? We speak before God in Christ, but we do all things, beloved, for your edification. There that word is again. Throughout these two letters, Paul reminds them, Edification, the lifting up or building up of others, is key, it's essential, it's absolutely necessary. Paul did that for them. And he demonstrated that desire to edify them so that they would edify one another. Verse 20 says, For I fear lest when I come, I shall not find you such as I wish, and that I shall be found by you such as you do not wish lest there be contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, backbitings, whisperings, conceits, tumults, lest when I come again my God will humble me among you, and I shall mourn for many who have sinned because I have not repented, or 
mourn for many who have not sinned before and have not repented. Not Paul, but the others who have sinned of uncleanness, of fornication, of lewdness, which they have practiced. Paul is reminded that the city of Corinth is a very wicked city indeed. And in the church at Corinth, many had embraced those very things that Paul is mentioning here. And he had already told them that that was absolutely wrong, sinful, and needed to be dealt with. Paul is saying in these last few verses, I will come again if the Lord allows me, and I believe that God must have already convinced Paul that yes, he will be going, because he doesn't really say that very thing. He says, I am planning on coming. I fear lest when I come, I shall not find you as I wish. He's going to come. He's apparently very confident of the fact that now he's been through all of the other churches in Galatia, in Achaia. He's collected the monies from them and from Galatia and, and, uh, and uh, Corinth, and he's on his way down now to Jerusalem with that gift. He's coming through Corinth to take up that collection. He's going to finish the work that God has sent him in that missionary journey to do. And he's saying, when I arrive, I don't want to have to deal with these things. I want you to see me as I truly am, a man who loves you. I don't want you to find me angry and uh, in that anger having to rebuke you, but I will if I must. And I don't want to find you living in sin, but if I do, I will be having to deal with that. That's what Paul is saying in these last few verses, reminding them. Remember, the Corinthian church was behind no other church in the gifts of the Spirit. And yet, here in this two letters, Paul has had to address so many wrongful things that the Corinthians were allowing, and they were overlooking sinful things that needed to be corrected. He spent this time in these two letters telling them how important it was for them to edify one another, to love one another, to do what is right, to take care of the sin issue by expelling those who were sinners from the uh, congregation in order to win them back in love. All of those things Paul had addressed in these two wonderful letters to the Corinthian church. We'll finish next time with chapter 13. A relatively short chapter also, but we don't have time tonight to get into it. And hopefully... By the time we finish this book, we'll have been given great insight into the mind and heart of the greatest apostle, the apostle to the Gentiles, that Jesus appointed for that purpose. He wrote these marvelous letters so that we could know how we too must live. So let us do that. And let us be reminded of the pitfalls that can come before us, that Satan will try to trip us up with. But we can know also that when we fall, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, our Savior. He intercedes for us. And we can go to our Father whenever we're having to deal with difficulties, with trials, with tribulations, with pain, with suffering with things that are making us to stumble or fall. And we can come to Him and we can seek Him 
to deliver us from those things. But if he does not, will we still serve him? My answer to that for me is, yes, Lord, I will, because I know that your grace is sufficient. And in that grace I stand, for your strength is perfect. And in your strength, I am made strong, even though I am weak. That is what I desire for all of us as we continue to serve him in these last days. May that be so, in the name of Jesus. Amen.